Hi everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Summer days, scrolling by with the speed of all life's seasons. We so try to savor this quicksilver delight, sunrise coffee on the deck, sunset on the beach. All too quickly, of course, it slips through our fingers. However you may be spending these precious August days, we thank you for joining us for these book chats and stories. Today, we bring you a terrific interview with Mike Rubin, the author of The Cotton Crest Curse and Cashed Out. After our chat, I'll read to you from my story, The Right Choice, which appeared in 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2017. Next week, we'll wrap up the golden month of August with author Michelle Cox, A Girl Like You, and A Ring of Truth, and reading of our short story Family Recipe by Catherine Estolfo from EFD1 Starship Goodwords, Carrick Publishing, 2012. For our family, August is the cream of the year. We begin on the first by celebrating our wedding anniversary. 21 years ago, Alec and I tied the knot, and coincidentally, we also closed the real estate deal on our 63-acre farm on that same day. So in effect, we bought the farm. It was a day for the memory books, with our eldest son Thomas as our best man. The three of us toured the North Country that day in our wedding clothes, taking pictures and sipping the day. Twenty years ago, on August 3rd, our second son, Ted, was born. This year, on August 14th, our youngest, Tammy Lee, became a new student driver. That's right. Congratulations, Tammy, on passing the test. Such an important step for any young person toward their independence. For as long as I can remember, August has been the month of summer vacation, both in my childhood family and since I've been an adult. A lot of Canadians prefer July, when the northern weather is more reliable, but I've always leaned on August. For one thing, I can't bear to have another precious summer holiday finish so early in the season, when everyone else is returning to work at the end of July, we're just heading out for our holiday. Also, Faulkner had it right. The light is different in August. The sun takes on a different angle, casting shadows long in perspective, and the evening coolness is a welcome relief from the midday oppressive heat. Sunsets in August are more regal, sunrises more ethereal. The trees are still green, though heavy and weary, their leaves dusted with fatigue. As I speak to you now, I'm in my sunroom studio, surrounded by those very trees, and the 3 p.m. sunlight models the greenery in patches of joy. And this is the environment of warmth and slow death, to which I welcome this week's guest, Mr. Mike Rubin. Although the acknowledged author of these high-stakes thrillers is Michael H. Rubin, the books are, in fact, the result of the longtime collaborative effort of the husband and wife writing team of Mike and Ian Rubin. Their debut novel, The Cottoncrest Curse, is a historical thriller published by the award-winning LSU Press in 2014. Its storyline takes place from the 1860s through the 1960s, and follows the exploits and travails of several generations of five families who own, work, or reside near the eponymous South Louisiana plantation. 
the Cotton Crest Curse garnered the Book of the Year Gold Award at the annual meeting of the American Library Association in 2015, where it was named the top thriller suspense novel published by a university or independent press. Their second novel, a contemporary legal thriller entitled Cashed Out, was released by Fiery Seas Publishing on August 15, 2017. The story's backdrop is an issue confronting many communities throughout the United States and around the world today. How to strike an appropriate balance between the need to attract and retain high-paying industrial jobs while simultaneously safeguarding the health and safety of those who are employed at or live near such job sites. A nationally known legal ethicist, a public speaker and humorist, as well as a full-time appellate attorney, Mike has had a varied career. He's been a professional jazz pianist in the New Orleans French Quarter, a radio and television announcer, and an adjunct law professor. He won the Burton Award for Outstanding Writing, given at the Library of Congress, and is a member of the Authors Guild, the International Thriller Writers, the Mystery Writers of America, and the International Association of Crime Writers. Ian has had an equally varied career, having been a classroom teacher, an education administrator, a prolific grant writer, a developmental book editor, a nonprofit consultant, and for almost three decades, the coordinator of the Educational Services Division of Louisiana Public Broadcasting, a statewide television network where she was responsible for initiating and then shepherding a wide variety of video projects from concept through script development and production to statewide and national broadcast. So please give a generous Dead to Rights welcome to Mr. Mike H. Rubin. Good morning, Mike. Welcome to Dead to Rights. This this is much better. Thank you. Very good. I'm glad we've got a clear line. We're here with Mike Rubin, who is the author of the Bayou Thriller series, The Cotton Crest Curse and Cashed Out. And Mike, these look like fantastic titles. What can you tell us about what inspired you to write this series? Well, these books are written by my wife and me, although it's under my name. And, um, we wanted to write books that are page-turning thrillers, but are set in Louisiana and raise interesting ethical issues. So the Cotton Crest Curse, which runs from the Civil War era to the Civil Rights era and is historically accurate, published by University Press and has won all kinds of national awards, been translated into German and for sales overseas, uh, asks the question of, of, do we really know our family's history? And if we did, would it change our perception of ourselves and others? Mm-hmm. And Cashed Out is a contemporary noir legal thriller that uh, deals with uh, environmental racism, which is, or uh, environmental justice, which is do we want good jobs and excellent pay, but do we also want industries that create these that might pollute the environment and might harm poor and minority communities? And that's the tension. And these are really tense topical issues uh, for today. Um, so, so I really I, I commend you for for um, bracing these issues because uh, they're, you know, not everybody's got the guts to actually attack these issues in this way. Um, tell me about your protagonist in the Cotton Crest Curse. In the Cotton Crest Curse, the protagonist is a guy named Jake Gold, 
and Jake is a chameleon. Uh, he has to hide his true identity. But the, the driving force is that two decades after the end of the Civil War, an elderly Confederate colonel viciously slits the throat of his beautiful young wife and then fatally shoots himself. A local sheriff believes that this may be a double homicide and not a murder-suicide, but suspicion falls upon Jake Gold, this chameleon. He's an itinerant peddler who trades razor-sharp knives for fur and has many deep secrets to conceal. And also he teams up with Jenny, who's uh, the French-speaking daughter of a slave who has her own secrets, and they must stay one step ahead of the law and a racist clan as they interact to uh, save themselves and to keep the secret. Okay. Now, Louisiana is a beautiful setting. I mean, it's a such a, you know, it, it's a very interesting setting for most people, especially here in the far north. Um, is Cashed Out, uh, it, 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 can you tell me about the protagonist in Cashed Out, and is the setting similar? Well, the, the setting is Louisiana. It's contemporary. In Cashed Out, the protagonist is a guy named Shex, Shex Snyder, which is a good Cajun name. And uh, Shex is a failure as a lawyer. He's had one failed marriage, two jobs lost, three maxed out credit cards, and until three weeks before the novel starts, he had no clients and no cash. Well, no clients except for the infamous toxic waste entrepreneur Gigi Guidry, who's just been murdered, and no cash except for the four million four hundred fifty-two thousand seven hundred thirty-seven dollars and seventeen cents in cash that Guidry had stashed with him for safekeeping. I love the premise. I really do. I was reading up about both books um, in advance of our interview, and they just look fascinating. They really do look like page turners. Now, Mike, tell me about um, your wife, because you've co-written these with your wife. I didn't realize that. What What is her name? Her name is Ann, A-Y-A-N, Ann Rubin. We walk at 4.30 a.m. every morning. We work on the plot and characters as we walk. We do two to three miles every day. And once we have the arc of the story, we know the beginning, the middle, the end, we know the key characters and, and what they want, we usually know the first line and the last line, then we start writing, we don't do any more plotting than that, because part of the fun is connecting the dots, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we write together, and uh, uh, we end up with a, a single voice, her experience has been in television, mine has been in the law, so that really helps, because she helps with the visuals, and I have all... The, uh, the legal stuff, and uh, it, it works really well. That is a brilliant combination. Uh, now, is Anna a Louisiana lady as well? Well, uh, we've been down here many, many years. She was born and raised in, in Massachusetts outside of Boston. Okay. So we've, lived, <laughs> we've lived in Louisiana many, many years, and she uh, worked on television down here for many years and was involved. So, uh, in fact, she has a stronger draw than I do now. Well, that is terrific. I, I really like that. Uh, please give my regards to Anne as well. These books are just beautiful looking. Um, the Cotton Crest Curse, it, it, uh, I believe that it's been uh, an indie winner of an award, hasn't it? Yes, it won the Indie Fab Award as the best thriller and suspense novel of the year. It came out in, uh, a few years ago, and it won that in 2015, announced at the American Library Association's annual meeting. And uh, Cashed Out just won the uh, Jack Eden Award as the best contemporary drama for a book that was the most uh, most important book that had exciting uh, dialogue and characters that you could envision in the real world. I saw that. I saw that Cashed Out had won the Jack Eden Award. So that's really kudos to you for that. That's terrific. 
And um, they, they've uh, both books have got that southern charm thing going on that that readers just love. And as you were saying, brilliant dialogue. And and um, I think it's a really good combination that that your wife is working in has worked in media because she'll know how to keep things moving. And you bringing the the legal aspect to it, I'm sure, gives it an awful lot of authenticity. Well, what we want is, you know, we, although each book has an ethical theme, uh, our goal is not to write a, a treatise or, or even a... a, a exactly, a not to preach uh, not to the monologue. reader. What we yeah. want to do is have something where at the end of every chapter you say, all right, I'll just read another page or two to see what happens next. Yes, And that's yes. our goal in writing. I love that. And that is the way to write these days. It's really the only way to write these days. Um because readers just don't have the time, and if they're going to invest the time in you, they've got to really want to. Well, and, and one thing we do deliberately is our chapters are very short, mm-hmm. so you can read them, you know, uh, quickly. On the bus? A lot of our readers have told us that, you know, once they get started, they, send, they end up spending all night reading it, which is also very flattering. Good. And are they also available for e-reader? Yes, they're, they're, they're both available on uh, Kindle and, uh, and Nook. Excellent, excellent. I'm glad to hear that because that's another way people really are accessing literature these days and uh, genre fiction. Um, what made you decide to start this particular venture? Well, I've, uh, I've written a number of uh, nonfiction legal books, and Anne has written scripts uh, and for television for years, and as we walked at 4.30 in the morning, we were creating uh, characters and things to talk about, because, you know, after, when our kids were young, after you decide who's going to go to the ballet class and who's going to go to the gym, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have no two miles to stay, stay awake before 5 a.m. or 5.30 when we get back. So we started creating these characters, we started taking notes, and we realized, hey, we had enough here for a novel, so... That is terrific. What a great collaboration. Pleased with the result. But because, uh, you know, I, I speak with a lot of uh, writers who are husband-wife teams, but they don't generally collaborate on a single project. Um, my husband and I, for example, we both write, but we write separately together. You know, we're both at the same table, so we're working together in that sense, but he's working on his projects and I'm working on mine. And we'll generally, we'll proofread for each other, we'll make suggestions, we'll look over each other's shoulders, but we're not really collaborating on a single project. So that that's kind of a unique approach. It is. In fact, uh, there's there's an event called Thriller Fest in New York that's coming up in uh, a few weeks, and now I'll be there talking about, uh, on a panel talking about partnerships, and is it a collaboration or War of the Roses? And mm-hmm. in our case, it's a, it's a pure collaboration. We we don't have any disagreements. The question is, how do we make the book more interesting to readers? That is terrific. And you've got the same goal. And when you've got the same goal, I think it does reduce the um, potential for any conflict, you know. Um, it, it, you know, you both want to present something that is really a page turner, and, and that's what you've got to do. Um, we just got back from New York City. Uh, so you say you're going to be going there in what month? Uh, in, in a few weeks in July. There's a, there's an event called Thriller Fest, uh, mm-hmm. as you your uh, listeners may know there are conventions around the United States for thriller fans and authors. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's Thriller Fest in BoucherCon and Killer Nashville and Deadly, mm-hmm. just in Left Bank. And there are a number of them. And Anne and I have appeared in a number of these. Uh, we've been very pleased to have been invited to be uh, authors on panels there. That's excellent. So, listeners, you can um, rub shoulders with Mike Rubin at Thriller Fest in July in New York City. And... Um, Perhaps at BoucherCon? Will you be going to BoucherCon? 
Uh, I, I was at BoucherCon already. It was in Toronto. We were there. But if uh, if uh, your listeners want to want a presentation, uh, Ann and I have developed a multimedia presentation about the background of both books, and each is about twenty minutes long. It ends with a small reading of the book as well, and uh, we've not only give them in person around the country, but we've actually give them on Skype and FaceTime to book clubs around the world. So uh, we're glad to do a, a book club event for, for your listeners' book clubs. That's terrific. Uh, so if you want to reach um, if you want to reach Mike and Ann Rubin, go to mrubinbooks.com, and there is a contact form on the, the beautiful website you've got. That's mrubinbooks.com. And uh, again, there's a contact M-R-U-B-I-N. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, books.com. And I'm so impressed with your website. I was saying to my husband, this is really a very nice website. Um, so, uh, you know, hats off to you for that. Did uh, your wife help you to design that as well? Yes. The two of us, uh, we had uh, obviously some help, but yes, that, that was a joint effort. We do everything together. That is really a, a brilliant website. I encourage our listeners to go there and check it out and use the contact form if you would like Michael and Ann to do a presentation for your book club or for any other type of event you might be holding in the literary industry. And uh, now I want to talk to you about your next work. What else have you got coming out in this series? Well, we've got uh, we've got two books uh, coming out uh, that are agents right now, and I our series don't, unlike most series, don't have a single character. Our series, the character is the state of Louisiana. Yes. So all of our books are set in Louisiana. And uh, we have a book uh, in the works now called The Crescent City Killer, set in Louisiana. And uh, we also have one called Inflamed. Uh, Inflamed is about a radical right-wing group that decides that now is the time, and New Orleans is the place to make a explosive worldwide statement. And the question is, can a small rural deputy piece together the clues in time to stop it? Uh, and uh, the Crescent City Killer is about an unlikely team of two women uh, who's uh, team up to uh, to try to solve a vicious crime that's occurring in the, in the city of New Orleans. Wow, wow. Two more great titles. That's Inflamed and The Crescent City Killer. And when are they expected to be released, Mike? We're negotiating with publishers now, so we're still about a year away. Okay. If you watch our, we- if you watch our website, uh, there's actually some excerpts from them already mm-hmm. uh, on the site. And also, you can also listen to an audio clip from uh, Cashed Out and see reviews of all the books. I saw that wonderful audio clip with the excerpt. That's really great. Listeners, if you do go to the website, make sure you check out the audio clip. Um, it's really terrific. Now, is that your voice, Michael, or did you hire a voice actor for that? No, that's me. That's you. I thought so. I thought I recognized the voice. That's terrific. It's really well done. You've got an excellent reading voice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, now, have you thought about audiobooks? Are you going to be presenting these in... Crest is already an audio book, really well, and uh, we're in the process of producing an audio book for Cashed Out. Excellent, excellent. I'm all about the audio books these days because 
I don't know about other readers. I love to read. I grew up reading. I've never not had a book in my hand, but time is just so valuable and it so dear to me these days. I just can't seem to ever find enough time for anything. So what I do now when I go for my walks every day, and I try to get three big walks in every day, is I listen to my audiobooks. So I'll definitely be listening to The Cotton Crest Curse. Great, great. Well, uh, we welcome readers and listeners' comments on our website. Very good, very good. Um, Michael, um, can you tell me a little bit about your legal career that led to this? Sure. Uh, I uh, help manage a law firm that has offices in, in the United States from the East Coast to the West Coast to the Gulf Coast. Uh, I head our firm's appellate practice, which means that if... Uh, if you lose a case in the trial court, it has to go up on appeal. I had our team that does that across the country. Uh, and I've also been an adjunct law professor for a number of decades at three of the four law schools in the state of Louisiana. And I also give 20 or 30 talks across the United States, uh, England, uh, and Canada a year to legal groups and Fortune 500 companies about ethical issues. Okay. Okay. That's really fascinating. I'm sorry to drag you back into that part of your career because I know that Many of us escape our actual careers into writing, but I, I just know that our listeners would be interested to know it because you've been compared to John Grisham, and so just knowing your background in the legal field, I think will be interesting for our, our listeners. Um, yeah, is there anything else that you'd... Uh, can you share any tips for new writers in particular who are trying to break uh, into the that. thriller genre? I'll give you the the, uh, the two tips that I've had over the years. I've been on panels with lots of writers everybody will recognize. Uh, and here are, the, here are the two best tips. Number one is everybody has a novel in them. Not everybody has a novel that's been finished. And that if what you do is you wait until the first line of the first chapter or the first four, three chapters are perfect, you'll never finish it. So, you know, finish it, then you can always correct it. You can always fix it, but you can't fix it until you get it done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the second is, uh, and and I know you and your husband know this from your own writing, which is much you must show and not tell, mm-hmm. which means uh, often rather than giving lengthy descriptions of things, how people talk, how they say something, uh, and how you present it is much more powerful than simply explaining it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, I like to think of that because we always hear show, don't tell. And I know that new authors get very frustrated by that because they just can't always conceptualize that. So I try to explain it by hit the ground running. You know, every scene in your novel needs to open with a true action and it needs to close with a cliffhanger. And uh, it should be running the whole way through. It, it truly should, particularly for thrillers, but for any kind of modern genre literature, um, that, that should be the case. It's all about the dialogue. When you're out in the world, listen to people. How do they really speak? How are Mike and I speaking to each other right now? Um, how do people really speak? Your, your text should not be block text. Right, and, and for example, it's easy to write, he was a gruff man with a brusque manner. Mm-hmm. But it's much more powerful to have him show that in dialogue. Yes. That way the, the, uh, that way the reader understands it without you having to explain it. Mm-hmm. And when he grunts his response, um, I think the reader will get the idea. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, no, I agree completely. That's very good advice, Mike. Thank you very much for that. And uh, stay with me for a moment. I'm going to turn off the recording right now, but I want to thank you for coming to Dead to Rights and uh, sharing your knowledge and your wife's knowledge with us and with our listeners. My pleasure. I want to thank Mr. Michael H. Rubin for joining us this week on Dead to Rights, the podcast. I hope you'll stay with me for my reading of The Right Choice from 13 Claws, Carrick Publishing. Let it rot. The Right Choice by Donna Carrick. There have been times when I've regretted my tendency toward impulsive decision-making. It's not that I consider myself to be stupid or rash. I do my best to think things through. Rather, it's that my process is a quick one by most standards and involves a great deal of reliance on gut instinct. For the most part, my gut has served me well. I lifted a photo from the shelf and smiled into the faces of my husband, Gerald, and our only son, Hal. I'd fallen in love with Gerald almost instantly. Certainly, by our second date, I was committed, and it was only a matter of waiting for his feelings to catch up with mine. Was it the right decision on my part? I smiled again and dusted the frame with my sleeve before putting it in its place. Without a doubt, marrying Gerald was the best thing I'd ever done. It was followed a year later by the birth of our wonderful son. But I can't claim that every one of my personal choices was a winner. Oh no, not by a long shot. I've been lucky, more or less, but a time or two my instincts led me dangerously astray. When I first met Gerald, I was firmly on the rebound from one such unfortunate decision. Stephen. That was his name. Blue eyes flashing under a mop of angel blonde hair. A smile that could explode into laughter without warning, carrying everyone around him into a state of pure mirth. Or, equally without warning, sour into a frown. Erupt in anger. Words that would knock you down, a fist that could make sure you stayed down. That was Stephen. It didn't take me long to admit my mistake in loving Stephen. It took him a lot longer to accept my decision to leave. The restraining order didn't do the job. He continued to follow me, to come around day or night. When I called the police, he became more subtle in his approach, more sly, I couldn't prove it, but I knew he'd been in my apartment many times during the six months after our breakup. My father, God rest his soul, stepped into the mess and put an end to it. Stay away from Angela, he said simply. His words were punctuated by the boot he'd placed on Stephen's throat and the guns he and his two fellow officers pointed at my ex. I stepped into the kitchen, humming, All my exes live in Texas. Daisy roused herself and followed me, looking for breakfast. Bringing Daisy home as a pup had been another snap decision, and one that still brought a smile to my face all these years later. I remembered the day I'd chosen her from a litter of irresistible golden retriever pups. They looked like overgrown hamsters, wobbling around on uncertain legs, just beginning to discover the art of play. Hal was two years old at the time, both Gerald and I had grown up with dogs, so deciding to have one in the house was easy for us. 
We agreed on a golden, since we knew the breed to be especially gentle with young children. Of course, at the time, we didn't know Hal would be our only child. We envisioned a house filled with youngsters, and our Daisy acting as a stand-in for Nana, the nursemaid dog of the Darling household and Peter Pan. There were six pups in the litter, and even split between male and female. One gorgeous little boy pup bounced over to Gerald, who was taken with his energy immediately. But it was Daisy, the smallest of the lot, who nudged Hal with her nose and made him laugh. It was Daisy, a puffy ball of fur, who navigated her way onto Hal's lap and struggled to reach his chin for a slobbery kiss. My mind was made up. Daisy was ours. No regrets, that's for sure. She'd grown up so fine, so stately over the years. In no time we could hardly recall the sweet little runt who'd stolen our hearts. Daisy was a queen among dogs, proud head, magnificent in her bearing, stunning in her beauty. A dog with a sense of humor, quick to break into a doggy smile when her people told a joke or paid special attention to her. For the next four years, right up until the day I lost Gerald and Hal in a terrible hit-and-run, Daisy was the light of our lives. She worshipped Hal, following him everywhere, and when he went off to kindergarten, her eyes would repeatedly find the door, waiting and hoping for his return. When my father died last year, cancer consuming his lungs less than a year after his retirement from the force, it was Daisy who gave me the strength to carry on. Her loving face, her persistent care sustained me. During the worst of my grief, when I found it impossible to get out of bed, she would lie next to me, barely moving, never asking for food, waiting with enduring patience to be walked, to be fed. It was caring for her that got me through each day. I reached into the cupboard for her bag of kibble. She was an old girl, over twelve years, a good age for a golden, Despite a measure of slowness to her gait, she was in excellent shape. I credited our long walks and her enthusiasm for life for keeping her healthy. As she crunched on the smelly kernels, my eyes landed on my Keurig. Time for coffee. I opened the cupboard over the sink and reached for a mug. Without looking, I pulled out my favorite cup. Then, before I could place it onto the counter, my hand froze in mid-air. Something wasn't right. I studied the mug in horror. The mug in my hand was not my favorite. Also, I have a lifelong habit of putting the cups away upside down, turned over to avoid collecting dust. One look into my cupboard was all I needed to be sure. Three of my cups had been tampered with, turned upside right and moved around so that my favorite one was set behind the others. Let me be clear. Other than Daisy, I live alone. My father, who had a habit of dropping by without warning, has been gone to that great donut shop in the sky for the better part of a year. As smart as she was, Daisy never learned to wash and dry dishes. As for me, my habits are fairly well formed. Anyone else would say I was losing my mind, but I recognized this for what it was. Stephen was back in my life. He must have heard of Dad's passing. For whatever reason, he was back. I returned Gerald's old, unused mug to the cupboard, upside down, thank you very much, and turned the others over before removing my own mug and placing it onto the counter. 
With Daisy at my side, I double-checked the locks on every window and door in my modest home before setting the java to brew. When had he been here? It must have been within the past 24 hours. As I said, my habits are uniform. I brew a cup every morning at precisely this time before taking Daisy out for her walk. Then it's off to work for eight hours, returning home in time to take Daisy out to the local park before dark. We usually walk and play catch for about an hour. That must be when Stephen broke into the house. How long had he been watching me? How long stalking, studying my movements before he figured out it was just me and Daisy now? A gentler, less threatening pooch you'd never meet. Still, even the most sedate of dogs will protect its home. So no doubt Stephen had waited till our evening walk before trespassing. Who knows? Maybe he'd never stopped watching me. Maybe he was well aware of those happy years when Gerald and I laughed and shared the joy of watching our baby grow into a school-aged boy. Maybe Stephen had been there all along, breathing heavily on the fringes of my life, waiting for his chance to carry out the threats of long ago. It was Saturday morning, and a fine one at that. After letting Daisy into the yard for a moment, I carried my coffee to the deck. She harumphed and dropped at my feet, laying her snout onto folded front paws. She looked at me, raising first one eyebrow, then the other, in that comical way of hers, until I laughed at last and relaxed into the morning. What the hell? I knew Dad still had friends on the force who would be only too happy to help his daughter. There was Fred O'Leary, a 50-something health fanatic, who'd had a massive heart attack three years earlier, but had recovered sufficiently to resume duties, albeit on desk work. And Ricky Strom, who was maybe ten years younger than Fred, and who had been the one to stand beside me at Dad's funeral, keeping me steady on my feet as the last of my world came crashing down. Either of them would jump at the chance to have a word with my unruly ex. But it was Saturday morning and too early to be calling old friends, waking them from a weekend sleep. I sipped my hot drink and fiddled with my phone, placing a bud in each ear and finding my favorite news channel. Nazis and white supremacists were marching with the KKK in somewheresville. As usual, the news was anything but good. I listened for a moment before switching to the music app. Come on, girl, I said, rising to my feet. I stroked her head and mane, remembering those better days, when mornings were perfection, when Gerald and Hal would gather at the breakfast table, teasing me and each other and laughing, their mouths full of Saturday morning eggs and bacon, strawberry jam on their chins, and a much younger Daisy prancing around the table in delight, hoping for a crumb to fall her way. I let out a sigh. The days and nights of sorrow were over now, I seldom indulged in crying any more, instead allowing my good memories to carry me forward, determined to find a new purpose, a new reason to live. Daisy kept me alive, forcing me to put one good foot in front of the other. Time for our walk. The park was teeming with joggers and fellow dog walkers, all the early morning folk, who, like me, cherished this slice of each new day. I knew many of them by sight, though only a few by name. A number of people nodded and waved in passing. Daisy was beyond the days of chasing other doggy friends. 
She merely wagged her tail as they inspected her, slowing our walk, but not interrupting it. As usual, I kept a single treat in my pocket. She knew it was there, but paid it no attention. Once we were ready to leave the park, I would give it to her. It was such a fine morning that I almost forgot about the mystery of the coffee mugs. Almost. I checked the time. Still too early to make a call. After we returned home, I'd take a second coffee onto the deck and reach out to Fred and Ricky. They'd know exactly what to do. Daisy and I found an empty bench. Making ourselves comfortable, we watched the movement of humans and canines passing by. I reached into one pocket for her treat and into the other for my phone. I'd kept tabs on Stephen over the years, careful not to leave a cyber footprint, careful not to invite him into my sphere by tapping too firmly into the cosmos. For instance, I knew when, two years after our calamitous breakup, he'd married Cindy, the sweet school teacher. I knew through Dad's friends on the force when, a year later, he was arrested on domestic violence charges. And, shortly after his divorce was final, he entered his second marriage, this time to a Filipino woman by the name of Teresa. Teresa, bless her heart, stood by her man longer than either Cindy or I had, refusing to press charges after a case of battery that was brutal enough to make the evening news. That marriage lasted three years before Teresa finally got the message and fled back to the Philippines. She discovered what Cindy and I already knew. Loving Stephen was one truly bad decision. I was grateful, despite my losses, for the blessings I'd enjoyed. I'd known what it meant to have a family, a good, strong father who raised me after my mother died, a husband who never failed to hold my hand in public, a son who filled our home with laughter and light, and, of course, our Daisy. Yes, I'd made a lot of good choices in my life, choices that were easy to defend, choices that others could and did envy. But there was no denying it. I'd taken at least one exceedingly wrong turn. Stephen. Daisy and I made our way reluctantly back to the empty house. Having never been a joiner, I had nothing on the agenda for the weekend. By the time my coffee was ready, it would be late enough to justify making a call or two. I fumbled for my key, holding the lead in my left hand as I used my right to unlock the front door. I won't pretend we had any instinctive reaction, either Daisy or myself. I won't pretend our spidey senses kicked in, or that the hair stood up at the backs of our necks. Nope. Neither of us had the slightest notion that we were not alone. I removed her lead and she trotted into the kitchen to make sure she'd cleaned her breakfast bowl. I followed, with coffee and Cheerios on my mind. Hello, Angela. I jumped, startled at the familiar voice. Daisy growled, slinking to my side, pressing her body against my leg. How's it going? What are you doing here, Stephen? I think you know, he smiled. But it wasn't the winning, charming smile of his youth, the smile that lured you into believing he was normal. This smile was an evil mask, oozing ill intent from the upturned corners of his mouth. He lifted his hand, showing me the blade of a hunting knife, the same one I'd once found hidden in the linen cupboard of our apartment. My mind raced. Best to show no fear. 
Best to keep it normal, keep it civil. I was about to brew coffee. Would you like a cup? I smiled and pulled two fresh mugs from the cupboard, ignoring the fact that they had once again been turned upside right. Sorry to hear about your father. He turned that malicious smile my way. Martin was a good man, a good cop. Thank you, I said, deliberately ignoring the underlying malevolence in his voice. How long has it been since the accident? He meant, of course, the day my husband and our child had been killed, driving back from Pickering. It had happened during the pre-dawn hours of a Saturday morning. A terrible hit-and-run that sent our minivan spiraling into the dividers and bouncing back into oncoming traffic, causing a deadly collision that could have been much worse if the hour had been later and if traffic had begun to build to its normal level. A horrible accident that killed Gerald immediately and sent Hal into a coma for a week before robbing him of his young life. We'd left Daisy at home and wanted to get back in time to walk her. That's why we were on the road so early. The mystery of the unknown other driver had never been solved. Witnesses said his plate had been removed and his silver RV could have been one of thousands of its model in the GTA. I asked how long it's been, he repeated, since Gerald and Hal were killed. I stiffened. How dare he utter their names? How dare he soil their memory with his foul voice? I regained my composure before placing the coffee mug in front of him on the counter. Eight years, I said, then added as an afterthought, today. That's what I thought. Why do you ask? I struggled for a neutral tone. How did it feel losing everything? I stroked Daisy's shoulder, noting the tension in her muscle. Not quite everything, I thought. As usual, he was talking at me, not really interested in hearing my answer. Sorry about the kid, he continued. That was a mistake. I braced myself against the counter, very much aware that Stephen stood between me and possible escape. Daisy remained alert, her body quivering against my leg. Holding my mug in my left hand, I reached behind me with my right, quietly opening the drawer beside the sink, the one containing old receipts and clean dish towels. Are you saying it was you, Stephen? Did you cause the accident? I wanted to scream, to throw myself at him, to call him a murderer, but I remained as calm as possible, knowing why he'd come, today of all days, and hoping to stall his act of violence. I followed you to Pickering the night before it happened. I watched you laughing, watched you holding hands with him and with your kid. I parked across the street and waited. I thought you'd have dinner, then leave, but you stayed overnight. He paused, searching my face to be sure I understood what he had done. We were supposed to be married. You were supposed to hold my hand, have my kid. We were supposed to be a family. Stephen, I said, that was a long time ago. You've been married since then. He nodded, twice. Then why are you here? Why are you still watching me after all these years? I never stopped, he said. I've always been here, watching you. After the accident, I thought you'd call me. I thought you'd reach out, let me comfort you. A slow rage bubbled in my craw, but I swallowed it. But you'd moved on, I said. 
You'd made another life for yourself. You didn't need me anymore. It was the wrong thing to say. I watched as his smiling mask dissolved into fury. Daisy sensed it, too. She tensed beside me, crouching ever so slightly. That was all the warning we were given. A change of face, a sudden cloud covering the sun. Stephen lunged, knocking over his coffee cup. The knife held firmly in his raised fist. Daisy sprang, catching him off balance and causing him to step back slightly. In a flash, he righted himself, plunging the hunting knife deep into her throat. Her cream-colored fur became stained with a gruesome shade of red. It was over in an instant. There was no time to think, no time to run before he was once again coming at me with the knife. You should have died that day. Why didn't you die? There was no time to think. But thanks to Daisy's final act, there had been time to put my hand onto Dad's old service revolver, the one I kept fully loaded, hidden under the old receipts and clean dishcloths in the kitchen drawer beside the sink. I lifted my hand and fired, point blank, into the face of evil. Stepping around Stephen's body and carefully passing Daisy, who was already dead on the floor, I carried my coffee onto the deck. I pulled my phone from my pocket and scrolled through my contacts to O'Leary. Fred, I said when he answered, I need your help. Can you and Ricky come right over? Then I dialed 911. First responders arrived only moments before my father's old buddies pulled up to the curb. Fred O'Leary and Ricky Strom remained at my side throughout the questioning process and waited patiently while I made my formal statement to police. Stephen was pronounced dead. My father's weapon was taken into evidence, as was the hunting knife Stephen had used to slaughter Daisy. When the forensics team was finished with their work, Fred and Ricky helped me scrub my kitchen tiles with bleach. I wasn't sure I'd ever find a way to scour my mind, to clear the memory of that morning. By late afternoon, I was on my own again. This time, though, alone really meant alone. There was no Daisy to help me overcome the shock, the grief. I brewed a cup of coffee. I curled up on the couch, too exhausted for sleep, thinking of all the choices, good and bad, I'd made during the course of my lifetime. Gerald and Hal were the two best decisions I'd ever made. Even knowing the pain of their loss, I'd still trust my gut and do it all again. I'd give anything for another day, another hour with them. Stephen had been a mistake from the start. It hadn't taken long to see what a bastard he was, how dangerous and how volatile. But Daisy, Daisy, Daisy. What could I say about our dear Daisy? Runt of the litter, soul of a lion. Daisy was definitely, without a doubt, the right choice. The end. Thank you for listening to The Right Choice by yours truly, Donna Carrick, from 13 Claws by the May Dams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2017. If you're a published author and you'd like to be featured on Dead to Rights, email me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and mention Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'll be happy to hear from you, and there are still a couple of slots open for 2018. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca 
or at our Facebook page. On Twitter, we're listed as at Dead to Rights Pod. Please help us to continue bringing you new and established authors. Podcasters rely heavily on your feedback and support. This is a not-for-profit endeavor, but you can help simply by subscribing absolutely free at your favorite podcast platform. We're available at iTunes or at Google Play Music. Simply look for Dead to Rights, the podcast. And while you're there, be sure to share some love. A good rating can really help move our podcast up in the rankings, allowing our authors to reach more new readers. Thank you for doing this. It means a great deal to us here at Dead to Rights and Carrick Publishing. Bringing you outstanding author tips, writing content, short stories, and author interviews is our genuine goal. Also, don't hesitate to reach out to us anytime. You can find me, Donna Carrick, at DonnaCarrick.com or on Facebook under Donna Carrick or Carrick Publishing. My Twitter handle is at Donna underscore Carrick or at Carrick Pub. My better half, Alec Carrick, is at AlexCarrick.com or on Facebook, and that's A-L-E-X. You can tweet him at Alex underscore Carrick. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, as is all other story-scoring music. You can tweet with Ted at Ted Carrick or follow his YouTube channel at Ted Carrick Music. Be sure to tune in next week when we'll feature an interview with Michelle Cox, author of A Girl Like You and A Ring of Truth. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.